thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome to another episode of The Real Food Reel. Today on the show we have Jimmy Moore, low-carb expert and author of the 2013 bestseller Cholesterol Clarity, What the HDL is Wrong with My Numbers and the more recent Keto Clarity, Your Definitive Guide to the Benefits of a Low-Carb, High-Fat Diet. Today on the show we will learn more about Jimmy and discuss these latest books. I'm thrilled to welcome Jimmy onto The Real Food Real today. Welcome, Jimmy. The Real Food Real. I like that name, Steph. That's cool. Thank you. Thanks for coming on board. Hey, thanks for having me. Excellent. Now, before we dive in, I'd love for you to share with us your story and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So um, it was way back 43 years ago. My mom had, oh, I'm just kidding, not that far back. <laughs> No, it was a little over a decade ago that I was a very big man, um, weighed in at a total of about 190 kilo, uh, 410 pounds for my American friends that might be listening, and that was bad. I was on three prescription medications for high cholesterol, high blood pressure, breathing problems. I was literally a walking, talking, ticking time bomb in my health and really didn't know it. You know, people are like, well, when you get that big, how do you not know it? Well, I knew I was big, but I didn't realize just how much I was deteriorating in my health because my health, quite frankly, had not gotten to the point where I was like in a wheelchair or, you know, people don't really take things seriously till they get really serious. But it was bad enough that, you know, I had tried to lose weight and, and find ways to health many times over the years and had done all of the conventional wisdom things that we're told to do. Eat less fat, eat less calories, exercise every day on a treadmill. All of those things I had tried and, and been nominally successful at doing those to lose weight. But I would be grumpy and hungry and irritable and it just was not an optimal way. And I really came to the conclusion that if that was the way to health, then I would rather be fat and happy than healthy, quote unquote, and unhappy because that's the way I'd have to eat forever. So that's how I got to 410, uh, 410 pounds, 190 kilo. So on January 1st, 2004, I decided to go on the Atkins diet. So that's probably the most famous low-carb diet out there. And my mother-in-law, of all people, had given me Dr. Atkins's book. It, it, that, and that's a funny story because she had given me diet books for Christmas every year. Yes, your son-in-law is fat. Thank you very much. <laughs> so she was always buying me these, these books. And, 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 you know, I'm quite frankly, I'm grateful that she did do that because she took an interest. And, of course, my wife, Christine, who's sitting across from me over here, you know, she also was very concerned about me and my health. And and needed to be because I was not. I had pretty much, I guess, given up that, like I said earlier, I'd rather be fat and, and happy 
and and eat whatever I want and be happy than to think low fat, low calorie exercise is the only way to get healthy. So here I am reading this book, Dr. Atkins' New Diet Revolution, and I'm just saying, man, this guy is out of his mind. Eat less carbs, doesn't he? No, that's where you get your energy from. If you don't eat carbs, how are you going to be energized? You're going to be sluggish. You're going to blah, blah, blah. And then eat more fat. Wow, this guy really is messed up. He's a cardiologist, Dr. Atkins, and he's recommending people to eat fat. Doesn't he know that's going to clog your arteries and, get, and raise your cholesterol and give you heart disease? You know, and, and I'm sitting there just reading this book with my mouth literally wide open going, how in the world, not only do you lose weight, but more importantly, how do you get healthy eating that way? But I had tried all those other things and was so frustrated. I was like, what the heck? I haven't done anything that has made me feel satisfied as far as nutrition goes. Why don't I give this a go? So it was New Year's resolution in 2004 to lose weight. And and I went on the diet. And the first month, I lost about 12 or 13 kilo. Second month, I started exercising because I was feeling so energized at that great 381-pound man. Uh, I had to go out and exercise. That's a joke, by the way. Uh, I had to go out and exercise to get that energy out of me. And I lost another, in the second month, another, what was that, uh, 14, 15 kilo. So it was coming off really, really fast. And after 100 days, 100 pounds were gone, about 45 kilo were gone. And I knew at that point there was something special about what I was doing that was different than any other diet I'd ever gone on. And the cool thing about this stuff was right in the middle of it, I was not feeling hungry. I was feeling completely satisfied because I was eating foods that were formerly forbidden on a diet, things like butter and 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 meat and full-fat cheeses, and all of these things that they say you're not supposed to be able to lose weight with. Well, guess what? I was losing weight. And little did I know at the time, back in 2004 in the midst of this, but I was also improving health. So it was really a fantastic experience. By the end of that year, I did end up losing 180 pounds. What's that, about uh, 82 or 3 kilo pretty significant weight loss for a man my size. And I was uh, so motivated to try to share this with the world that I started a blog. And then a year after that started a podcast, which is now the longest running health podcast on the internet over, over 900 episodes. So it's pretty amazing how I got to where I am today. Yeah, it's a fantastic story. And um, we thank you for being so passionate and sharing, sharing as you do. I'm not going anywhere. I, I, got too, I got too much to say. There's too many people that still think low-fat diets hung the moon, Steph, that we have, to, we have to correct that. I'm not saying everybody necessarily needs to go on a low-carb diet, but definitely eating real food, eating naturally, as you promote here on this show, I think we'd all be better off if we did that than whatever we're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been some fantastic changes in the last five or so years, and I'm sure you would have seen that in your time, but we still have a long way to go. Yes. That's why we're here. (laughs) That's why we're here. Great. So let's dive in and start with what I thought was your first book, but it's actually not. Your 2013 bestseller, Cholesterol Clarity, was in fact your third book. But can you share with us a summary of of this and, and why you were inspired to write about the cholesterol heart health myth? 
Yeah, it was my third book, but my first one with a major publisher. And yeah. a, a lot of people didn't discover that I was writing books until the major publisher came along. And, and that's cool, you know. So cholesterol was one of those things that people always look at and still is. People look at it, that's a sign of your health is whatever your cholesterol number is. In fact, after I lost 180 pounds on the Atkins diet in 2004, I went to see my doctor. I wanted to get a checkup and, and see how my health was doing health markers were all doing. I had come off of all of those medications, by the way, that I talked about uh, being on. I was off of all of them. So since I was off of them and I pretty much took myself off of all of them, I wanted to make sure, am I hurting myself? Are, are we okay here? So I went to see my doctor the next January of 2005. This was 10 years ago now. And I just thought, you know what? He's going to think I'm a rock star. I just <laughs> lost a whole bunch of weight, triple digit weight. And he's going to say, you know, you're an exemplary patient that I need to, you know, share with other patients to motivate them. So I get in there and he's like, oh, wow, look at all the weight loss you had. And I said, yeah, it was pretty cool. He said, how'd you do it? I said, it was the Atkins diet. And he went, oh, we need to check your cholesterol. So isn't it interesting, the first thing out of his mouth wasn't, way to go, I'm glad you're getting healthy, blah, blah, blah. It was, you're eating a low-carb, high-fat Atkins diet, we got to check your cholesterol. Because that was the first thing he thought of. And I was not scared at all, Steph. I knew I was measurably better in my health as a result of this, not just because of the weight loss, but because of all the cardiometabolic markers that get better when you eat this way. So I said, yeah, let's run it. So we run the numbers. I get back the preliminary numbers, and I'm sitting there looking at the numbers, and the triglycerides had fallen to 42, which uh, I'm trying to translate into Australian terms. I think it's right around like 0. 0.5. 0. 0.5, wow. extremely good. That's great. And then my HDL cholesterol was 72, which is around 2.25 or something like that. Um, in your terms. Mm. Uh, so the ratio between those two numbers, which you'll find out is a lot better than the total cholesterol in the LDL, which is what doctors pay attention to. But anyway, I was, I was talking to my doctor and he's like, yeah, these are all great numbers, but you need to be on a statin drug again. And I'm going, what in the world are you talking about? Aren't, aren't, isn't my cardiovascular health much better now with these better numbers? Oh yeah, those are risk markers, but your total cholesterol is still over 200 and your LDL cholesterol is way over 100. You need to be on a statin. So it was at that point that I realized there's a lot more to this heart health story and this scam that is the statin drugs. Mm. I'm not saying nobody should ever, ever take a statin drug. Maybe there's a certain segment of the population that would do well on them. And here, here's the kicker. They always talk about the studies showing that you have to take it to reduce risk. Those studies have only looked at men. So if you're a woman and you're taking a statin drug, you have no science that supports that this is going to help you as a woman lower your cardiovascular risk. It's, it's just not. There's, there's no evidence there. And then if you're a man, only if you have had some kind of a cardiovascular event of some sort, a heart attack, a stroke, something that would that would clue them off because though that's the only population that statin drugs has ever been looked at is males that have had a previous cardiovascular event. Healthy people should not ever be taking a statin drug, and they've never been studied at least on healthy people until that happens. 
we need to stop over-prescribing these medications. And as we shared in Cluster All Clarity, Chapter 5 is your goldmine. If you want to learn why statins aren't as the great miracle pill like we've been told they are, they're causing a lot more damage than people are letting on, uh, namely CoQ10 deficiency, which CoQ10, if you don't know what that is, is a key heart health marker or, or heart health element in the body. And it's removing these statin drugs, which supposedly make you heart healthier, are moving a key heart health element. <laughs> it, it's really ironic stuff that yeah. we're, we're, we're getting people on these things and they're actually becoming more unhealthy, not healthier. Oh, absolutely. And you only need to do a small amount of research onto or into the side effects of statin drugs to really see right. how bad it is. I think that's my quote of the day. Healthy people should not be taking a statin drug. Right. Full stop. And yet, there's a lot of doctors that are just plopping those down like they're, like they're candy, like they're lollies, and uh, you don't need to have those in your health. I mean, you, you just don't. <laughs> I mean, I, I get upset about this. It really does just – it just angers me that these are thrown out there as this great savior in health, and I'm like, health is never found in a pill. Health will always be found in nutrition. You have nutrition deficiencies. You don't have drug deficiencies. Yeah, that's so true. And I think it's a really important point to clarify that just having, you know, um, high HDL or high LDL is is not the cause for statins for prescription drugs. There's ratios that we need to look at and certainly looking at the trends over the years with lower triglyceride levels. And, you know, we can go into further detail of, of markers, but, I mean, the individual needs to be considered as well. And you obviously had fantastic results, but your doctor was almost blinded by that because of the pharmaceutical influence. And, Steph, I am getting emails galore still. Even uh, almost two years after writing that book, I still get emails from people that go see their doctor and they're getting basically uh, the fear of God struck into them, you know, and that you must take this statin drug. And if you don't, you risk having a heart attack. And quite frankly, that just ticks me off because a lot of those people that then do start taking the medication, then they also tell them, oh, yeah, you probably need to cut your fat. You need to eat more healthy whole grains. You need to do all of these things that are the exact wrong thing to be doing because it's not lowering cholesterol that is the goal. That is a nice aim for doctors because they can then measure it and see some kind of a change. The real change you want to see happen is what's happening to your level of inflammation. And this is a new word to a lot of people, but the inflammation markers are so critical and if you have low inflammation, it doesn't matter what your total cholesterol is, your LDL cholesterol is. If you have low inflammation levels, you have no disease. And so the key heart health marker that you should be paying attention to uh, is called HSCRP, high sensitivity C-reactive protein. It's a simple blood test. The doctor can run it. Any doctor around the world can run it. And, and what it will show you is your level of inflammation in the body. 
Now, ideally, you want that number to be under 1.0 as an optimal level. That's a really good level when it's under 1.0. I think that's universal around the world. It is. Um, mm. And then under 3.0 for sure. If you go over 3.0, you're starting to show levels of inflammation that chronic disease can creep in. And that's what you need to worry about with a heart attack, a stroke, uh, heart disease, really any chronic health problem that we deal with today can all be pointed back to inflammation in the body. I had mine run just a few months ago and it came in at 0.44. Nice. And and that's despite the fact that my total cholesterol is what many would consider very unhealthy. Um, I'm trying to think in Australian terms. I think it's close to 10. Yours is? Yep. Yeah, right. Okay. The doctor would have had a heart attack himself. And and exactly. The doctor's like, you need to be on statin again. I'm like, but look at my, my CRP. That is inflammation. It's next to nil. How am I unhealthy with that level of inflammation? Um, who cares what the, what the total cholesterol is? Of course, what they're not doing as well, and we talk about this in Cholesterol Clarity, is they're not looking at the subparticle uh, uh, subfractions of the LDL particles. Yeah. And that's something we get into pretty deep. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think people need to worry about cholesterol as much as they need to be concerned with that inflammation marker, the CRP, their blood sugar levels, I think is a key marker in your health. If you are keeping it at a really good level, um, you know, who cares what all these other things are? Because those are things that if your health was out of whack, they would be out of whack as well. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. So maybe those that are listening that are taking satin drugs or have been put the fear in by you know the high cholesterol levels, go and get your CRP levels tested, have a look at your blood sugar levels and just really take a different approach. Don't assume you need pharmaceuticals when you can really make some fantastic health improvements with, with real food. And here's another thing they can do if their doctor is just adamant. You need you need this because you have disease happening in your body. If they say that you you know you're at risk for heart disease, you can go back to them and say, "Hey, look, okay, let's measure for actual signs of disease." And there's two tests that we talk about in the book. One's called a CT heart scan, and I I learned while I was in Australia there in November, you can actually get this run now. I believe there's a place in Sydney that will run the breakdown for you, a heart scan. Um, I'm not sure where else in Australia you can do that, but they also do the particle size breakdown there in Sydney as well, if you're interested in that. So then you can see whether you have those large fluffy kind of LDL particles, which are not atherogenic, or if you have mostly the small dense kind, which are atherogenic, which means they cause heart disease. So you can do that. You can ask for the CT heart scan where they basically do a CT scan of your chest and it looks for the presence of calcified plaque. If there is none, which there is none in Jimmy Moore, I have a zero heart scan score, mm. um, then you don't have really anything to worry about. And then there's one other one that some cardiologists say, well, even if you have a zero heart scan, you need to check for the carotid artery. So there's a test called the CIMT where they basically do an ultrasound along your neck and it will look inside the carotid artery to see if there's any plaque buildup in there. So if there's none found in your chest or in your carotid artery, again, the question becomes, do I have disease that requires me to take a pill that may or may not improve my health? 
that that's more important to me for you to ask your doctor than to just say, yeah, write me that prescription doc. Yeah, that's spot on. I don't know if you remember this, but back when Cholesterol Clarity was released, I sent a copy to my father and I tweeted you to say that Cholesterol Clarity was what finally got my dad off statin drugs and I'm forever grateful for that. I do remember that. that. That's cool. (laughs) I'm sure you get thousands of those though. (laughs) I do, but you know what? it's, It's gratifying to know that people are being empowered because I haven't done anything that, that the information hasn't already been out there in some form or fashion. All I'm doing is articulating it in a way that now people hopefully can understand it and then do something about it. And so kudos to you for taking action and uh, and changing the life of someone you love. Yeah. I mean, you're... I guess the great thing about Cholesterol Clarity is that you you are researched and then interviewed 29 of the leading experts. So it really made the information available and easy to read, whereas, you know, I feel like it was largely hidden for the last 40 or 50 years. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and, it, and it helps, too, that my co-author, Dr. Eric Westman, is also a practitioner who has seen this firsthand in his own patients. Uh, he does research and sees patients and you know again and again and again and again and again he sees all of these things that we talked about in the book uh so it was really great to have his md behind uh his name kind of supporting everything i was saying in the book and and my style you know steph is very let's explain it in layman's language because most people don't understand medical ease I do a little more now than I did when I first started doing this, but I understand most people that that are just lay people, you know, they don't understand advanced terminology. So if I can explain it in such a way that it's palatable to them, I feel like I've done my job. Yeah, excellent. And thanks so much. Now, last year you released Keto Clarity, and there's been quite the response with your fourth book. Can you please share with us the theory behind Keto Clarity, and then I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about endurance athletes and and this approach. Sure, sure. So keto is short for ketogenic, and when I started the Atkins diet in the book itself, they they put up the the K word quite often: ketogenesis, uh, ketosis, keto, ketogenic. You know, all of those were in there, and. I was going through and, and, and doing my research of, of ketogenic diets, and what I found was there was kind of a distinction between low-carb and ketogenic. A lot of people, Steph, think those two are kind of synonymous, and I think Dr. Atkins was maybe even throwing that word in there as being synonymous with low-carb, uh, the ketosis ketogenic. So I found, though, that they're not the same. And you really have to get very specific to actually produce ketosis. So what is ketosis? Ketosis in a nutshell is shifting your body over from being a sugar burner to being a fat burner. Now, most of the world's population right now are sugar burners. They're eating carbohydrates as their primary source of fuel, which then gets uh, converted into glucose in the body. And they're, they're happy fueling their bodies that way. But a lot of people don't realize this is you can shift your body over to another fuel source that the body actually can use quite efficiently, and that is fat. So when you shift your body over 
to not burning sugar anymore, you have to do changes in your diet to stop producing the sugar. So the very obvious first one is don't eat sugar. (laughs) So you're cutting sugar, but really any food that would turn to sugar in the body, and that includes most carbohydrates. So sugars, starches, um, you know, sugary fruits and things like that are off limits when you're trying to shift to being a fat burner. And then here's the one that shocked everybody because you cannot produce ketones and we'll talk about why that's important here in a minute, but you cannot produce ketones if you're eating too much protein. So there's people that, that go on a low carb diet and they eat chicken breast and broccoli thinking they're doing a good thing. And then they wonder, why am I hungry two hours later? Or you're hungry two hours later because you're stoking sugar in the body through this long G word we talk about in Keto Clarity (laughs) called gluconeogenesis. That's the most fancy schmancy term I'm going to put on your show today. But gluconeogenesis basically is where excess protein gets converted by the liver into glucose, which is sugar in the body. And if you're trying to burn less sugar and you're producing sugar from the protein you're consuming, that's not going to help you. So you have to moderate down on the amount of protein that you consume. So you've reduced your carbs to your tolerance level. You've moderated down your protein to your personal threshold level. What's left, Steph? It's fat. So you have to fill the rest of your calories with fat, and that's saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, and uh, the omega-3 fats are also in there. But you add those to satiety. And if you do all of those things over a two to four week period, your body begins to make this shift from being primarily a sugar burner to mostly a fat and ketone burner. Well, the ketones come into play. They start increasing in the body as you shift to being a fat burner. And it's those ketones which then go to key parts of your body such as the brain, for example, to give you all the health benefits that you get from being in a state of ketosis. It's a nice little summary there. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. A couple of times. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say. Now, I guess there are some, there's some conflict. There are some people that maybe aren't so supportive of a ketosis approach. Oh, there's a lot. (laughs) Yes. Is Can you maybe give us an indication as to what you think the, the main reason would be and, and, and how we can clarify that? Well, it comes from a variety of angles. I mean, if you ask a vegan, they say, well, it's too much meat and you don't need animal-based products and you don't need all that fat because it makes you unhealthy. And they go back to the cardiovascular thing we just talked about with cholesterol clarity. Um, so that's one argument that's out there. Um, another one from the paleo community is, well, our ancestors didn't eat this way all the time. So being in a constant state of ketosis isn't natural, um, which I agree with them, by the way, that it's probably okay to come in and out of ketosis, that it's not necessarily something that everybody needs to be in all the time. I think the more metabolically resistant you are, the more problems that you have with insulin resistance and obesity and maybe type 2 diabetes, you probably need to be in it a lot more than not. And I'm one of those people, Steph. I'm not type 2 diabetic, but I still deal with heavy insulin resistance, which when I get out of ketosis, I very easily 
put back on weight. I very easily see my blood sugars start to rise again. I have to be in that very low-carb, very high-fat ketogenic state if I'm going to control my health markers. So it's going to vary from person to person. And we talked about that quite a bit in Keto Clarity, that this is not a one-size-fits-all. Everybody should do it. But if you want to try ketosis, we show you exactly how to do that in the book. So as far as um, other objections to it, yeah, the fat is is a big one. I, th- I think you know people are still so fearful of saturated fat especially that they can't put their heads around how they get more fat. In fact, just today on Facebook, I got a Facebook message from somebody and they said, all right, I read your book. Um, how am I supposed to get all this fat in my diet? <laughs> and so I'm like, well, you just add more fat to your meals because they were thinking they were going to have to eat like whole sticks of butter in one sitting. I'm like, no, that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> but it's adding more fat to your food and not being fearful of it. I think even sometimes the stress of, of being afraid of eating real food like butter or coconut oil um, that stress can actually be counterproductive to your goals of wanting to get into ketosis and, and lose weight and get healthy. So it, it all ties in together. Yeah, that's an important point. I mean, as soon as our stress hormone cortisol is elevated, our liver dumps glucose into the blood. So yeah. then you get elevated blood sugar levels and, and it's almost impossible to get that satiety. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I love how you say it's such a individual or relative approach. I think that's really important for people to consider. But um, I do love the way Keto Clarity goes into how to do it right and that individualized prescription of getting the balance of macronutrients right so that you do experience, obviously, health, but satiety is huge to, to keep yes. you at it day in, day out. And it will vary from person to person. I mean, I eat probably around 80% of my calories as fat and about 15% as protein and 5% as carbohydrate. Now, my wife, Christine, is much smaller than me, has never really had a, a big weight problem like I used to have, and she can get away with about 55% fat um, and about 30% protein, about 15 or so percent carbohydrate, and get just as high ketone readings as I do. So that tells you the individual variability is going to vary widely. So test, test, test. And we haven't really talked about how you test for ketones yet, but that is a critical thing. You can't just guess, well, I'm eating low carbs, so therefore I'm producing ketones. Not necessarily. It really has come down to a technological science these days with all the gizmos and gadgets to be able to test. Yeah, and that's something that certainly is a, is a great way to, to work out that relative approach, at least early days. I don't think anyone needs to test forever. But no, it's I, a, I, yeah. It's a great initial tool. That's right. When you first start, and I often tell people, do it for at least like 30 days, just so you kind of know what's going on. And then after a while, you realize, oh, I know what it takes to get into ketosis. I don't need to keep obsessing about measuring all the time. And that's another thing. Don't obsess over all this stuff. You know, I did a very public experiment online on my blog about nutritional ketosis for a whole year where I did it every day, morning and night, and sometimes every hour in the hour. And I would post all these graphs about percentages of calories and of, of fat grams and all this stuff. And people now write to me and go, 
So how do I get – I'm at like 73% of fat. I'm trying to get to 80. How do I get it up to – I'm like, you know what? You're obsessing about this way too much. Back away from it, and it won't hurt you, I promise. Um, and, and, yeah, I, I think that's just human nature. People like to see results and numbers and things like that, but I think you can take it to the nth degree, Steph, and it be counterproductive to what you're trying to do. Yeah, well, we're certainly not looking for another version of calorie counting, are we? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. I left that in, in the dust about a decade ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. All right, so let's focus specifically around endurance athletes. Mm-hmm. How do you think keto clarity or a ketosis approach is suitable for those of us doing, you know, maybe 15 or 20 hours of exercise a week? Yeah, I I think there are some great go-to resources for people in that situation. I definitely recommend you go check out Ben Greenfield's work. I'm sure you're very familiar with him, um, who has done nutritional ketosis and and actually ran an entire triathlon in a ketogenic state just to see how he'd do. Um, So definitely Google Ben Greenfield. He was one of my experts in Keto Clarity, uh, but he does really great uh, work. I believe it's bengreenfieldfitness.com. And then when you're on there, uh, look up nutritional ketosis and you'll see all of his experiments and all of his results doing this as an athlete. But I highly, highly recommend a book called The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate performance, and it's written by two low-carb researchers, ketogenic diet researchers, Dr. Steve Finney and Dr. Jeff Folick. And these two guys really have been kind of leading the charge in the past couple of decades regarding uh, low-carb diets, ketogenic diets. And in recent years, they've really been putting their focus of attention on athletic performance in a ketogenic state. And actually, it was uh, Dr. Finney himself who conducted the very first ketogenic athlete study almost by accident. He, he didn't mean to prove what he proved and showed, but, but, it, but it happened. It was in the early 80s, and he had these uh, cyclists come into a ward, and, and for about a week they had them uh, consume a low-carb diet, and then they were testing their, their VO2 max and all these different measurements for seeing how they were doing in their athletic performance. And predictably, early on in the first week or so, their performance went down. And they almost went to print with that and said, look, uh, low-carb diets are not recommended for athletes because your performance will go down. And we have the measurements that prove that it did, blah, blah, blah. But Dr. Finney, in his uh, wisdom, said, no, let's do this for one more week. And what he found, Steph, was pretty astonishing uh, he found that the athletic performance actually came back up again. And what had happened was the athletes had to have a period of adaptation to the ketones becoming their primary fuel source. So no longer do they have this 2,000 calories worth of glucose that's fueling their bodies, especially an endurance athlete like, like a cyclist. But now they have upwards of 40,000 plus calories worth of energy at their disposal. That's how much fat calories is in them as a lean person. That's a lean person that has that many calories worth of energy. And he showed that in this study way back in the 80s. Now, since that study was published, there unfortunately has not been a whole lot more research on this. I really do hope that there are some studies that come out in the coming years. But for right now, 
A lot of it is anecdotal, still kind of basing it on what Dr. Finney found in in his 1980s study. Uh, Peter Atia is another one, um, the Eating Academy, if you want to look him up. He's also done some cycling uh, N equals one type of experiments to see how being in a state of ketosis uh, and doing endurance athletes athletic performance is working for him. So, um, so the answer to your question is there's not a lot of science, but there's a lot of people reporting improvements in their performance doing this. Yeah, I think you make some great points. I mean, I know that Steve Finney did find that accidentally, but what's great about the fact that he went a little bit longer with the duration of the study is that no one else had. Everyone else was saying that it was bad for athletes because of that initial performance drop. And, you know, for a long time it was ruled out and then we had industry involved and I won't mention any names, but we know how (laughs) huge sports nutrition is and what the guidelines are there. So there's a study coming out called Faster, which is all about fat-adapted athletes, and it dives in way deeper than that. But there's some really exciting work coming with elite athletes. Um, I know Stephen is involved in that as well. So, yeah, the resources you mentioned are all fantastic, and I'll put those in the show notes for those that aren't across it. But all of my clients read the art and science of low-carbohydrate performance. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, that was actually what inspired me to really start testing for ketones because I had never heard of blood ketones before reading that book. And it was really kind of what precipitated me testing nutritional ketosis on myself and then ultimately writing Keto Clarity. So I I have a lot of thankfulness for that book as well. (laughs) Yeah, it's changed a lot of people's lives, I think. That's right. Cool. So I want to learn a little bit more about you. But before we do, just summarize that for us, Jimmy. And what's your number one piece of nutrition advice? Summarize what I do? No, summarize like, I mean, I know we've discussed about real food and how you eat personally, but what would be your number one piece if you were to meet someone on the street and they asked you for for one piece of nutrition advice? Stop eating crappy garbage. Garbage. I love that word. Yes, you like like (laughs) my term, garbage. Yeah, people have used that, and that's cool. I I think it's a great term. And and I think saying garbage kind of uh, uh, denotes it from from other carbohydrates that are perfectly healthy. You know, sometimes being the low-carb guy online, I get a lot of criticism from people. Well, you can't tell people to cut their carbs because they need to eat broccoli and they need to eat spinach and they need to eat cauliflower. I'm like, those aren't the things I'm talking about cutting. (laughs) Those are things I'm talking about adding back in once you cut the true crappy garbage, which is the processed foods, the fast foods, um, you know, the donuts, the the cakes and, and all these things that are out there that people eat under the auspice that it's food. And, and what's really sad, Steph, is it's marketed as healthy food because it has, quote, healthy whole grains in it. So that's what I'm talking about trying to get people off of. And And when I'm talking to people on the street, that is the first thing I say is cut the garbage, add back in the fat. Yeah, spot on. And if you do those things and and real food, this is not hard, people. (laughs) Let's cut the carbs. Let's cut the processed food. Let's add back in real fat, saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, and then just eat real food. If you do those things, a lot of these weight and health issues that we deal with as a world today would go away almost instantaneously. Oh, they do. And particularly like the cholesterol issues that we discussed earlier. 
you can make right. some huge changes just by spending a little bit of time focusing on real food. Yeah, triglycerides almost invariably come way down when you eat this way. HDL goes way up. That's the good cholesterol. Inflammation levels, that HSCRP comes way down. Blood sugar comes way down. Insulin levels, fasting insulin levels come way down. On and on and on and on we could go of all the great things, the key cardiometabolic health markers to get better eating this way. It's hard to ignore, and yet somehow, some way, the mainstream medicine, uh, the people in mainstream medicine, have ignored it quite conveniently. We could talk all day about that, but I won't. Yes, we could. <laughs> now, can you share with us what a day on your plate looks like, Jimmy? Yeah, so it's interesting because people ask this question, wanting to know, well, what do you eat for breakfast? What do you eat for snacks? What do you eat for lunch? What do you eat for afternoon snack? What do you eat for supper? What do you eat for midnight snack? And I'm like. I don't eat like that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have to eat like that anymore. Um, I, I'll tell you what I had today. So so this morning I had some or, or this morning I woke up, was not hungry. Guess what I did? I didn't eat. <laughs> if you're not hungry when you wake up, why would you eat? Oh, it's seven o'clock. I've got to go to work. And so I've got to eat before I go to work. No, you don't. Is there is there like a law in the Constitution or in, in your laws of your country that say you have to eat before you go to work? <laughs> Guess what? You don't have to. Now, I know there's some people that love bulletproof coffee, so it's the butter and the MCT oil and all this stuff in your coffee. I'm not a coffee fan, Steph, so I don't do that. I would just rather have the butter on my food. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I didn't eat. And then I had... Uh, I want to say around midday, probably around like 11 a.m., I had some sausage and I cooked, uh, mixed it with some butter and some cheese. And I made like kind of this little, I don't know what you'd call it, but it's this thing. It's kind of a a fake pizza type thing. So I put some garlic uh, powder on there and really did it up oregano, did it up really nice. So that gives me a lot of fat. Um, very little protein, moderate amount of protein, and very few carbohydrates. It's a pretty low-carb day for me. It's the new year, so I'm trying to get back, you know, really digging in and doing well uh, after the holidays. So, <laughs> And I've eaten that, and I don't have any hunger at all. I ate that. This is now about six hours later, and I still am not even close to being hungry yet. And And that's cool. You know, I think those periods of fasting, which we talked about in Keto Clarity, are just as important in the production of ketones. Now, if if I do get hungry and I want to eat again, you know, I will eat some non-starchy vegetables uh, like greens, um, spinach leaves, kale, really anything like that is really good. Uh, cauliflower. Um, sometimes I'll do the broccoli. Broccoli can be a little bitter for my taste buds. I don't know that if that's for you or not, but. It does for me. It's just really bitter sometimes. So I I don't eat as much broccoli as I probably should. (laughs) But um, eggs, uh, meats, um, and of course, I'm not holding back on the fat. So I'll eat coconut oil, uh, lard. We are trying to incorporate a lot more fermented vegetables. Uh, We learned that. We went to uh, a camp a few months back where we learned about how to ferment vegetables. And so I'm trying to do more and more of that and get some of the, the good healthy bugs in the system. Yeah, great. That's so, excellent. What's that? I just said that's excellent, looking after yeah. your gut health. Absolutely. And then, you know, we do like the bone broths as well and adding that in. 
the, the problem that one of the issues with a ketogenic diet that when people start on this, they almost forget to eat because it's so satisfying and it's so nourishing and then you're not really as hungry. So it's hard to get in all the nutrition you need to get in in a day um, because you're just so freaking satisfied. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I actually wrote an article called um, How to Low Carb High Fat the Right Way just to make right. sure that you are including the right sorts of organ meats and fermented veggies and even a small right. amount of berries if you can to get the antioxidants in just to make sure that while you're eating less, you're still getting a full nutrient profile. That's right. That's exactly right. Excellent. Now, what's next for Jimmy Moore? What are you working on in 2015? So I am currently, because Keto Clarity was such an overnight success, My and what's funny, I didn't tell this story, um, my publisher when I pitched them Keto Clarity the first time, even before I wrote Cholesterol Clarity, I pitched them Keto Clarity, and they're like, nobody's going to be interested in a book about ketosis and ketogenic diets. It's too niche a, a subject. Nobody's going to care. I said, I think you underestimate how much <laughs> that there would be. And the first week that Keto Clarity came out, it sold more in that one week than Cholesterol Clarity did the whole first year it was out. Oh, really? Wow. So they... um quickly became fans of ketogenic <laughs> diets. Because <laughs> you wanted to release Keto Clarity first, didn't you, before? I did. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad we did it the way we did it because if you talk about high-fat diets, you know, the, the major objection is it's going to clog your arteries and, and lead to heart disease. So we, we got that one out of the way first, Steph. So that was you know pretty brilliant, even by accident, uh, by my publisher to do that. Um, but I, uh, I, I'm glad it did do well because within a couple of weeks they said, okay, this has been so good, we want a cookbook. And I said, well, my idea of a cook cooking is to throw ingredients together and voila, there's the food. I don't like measuring like half a cup of this and a teaspoon of that and a pinch of this. So I said, can I go find a co-author? Because Dr. Westman, uh, he burns water. That's how bad of a cook he is. So uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. So I, I said, can I find somebody that does know how to do recipes well? So uh, do you know Maria Emmerich? Not personally, but I've seen your book or at least the um, yeah the previews. Yeah, that's right. So she is the um, she she's an independent author. She's written uh, self published seven books on her own, all uh, low carb, high fat, ketogenic cookbooks. And so I'm like, hey, you want to collaborate on a cookbook? <laughs> so, How did you find so, her? Well, she and I have been good friends because uh, we both talk about ketogenic diets. She was one of my speakers on my low-carb cruise last year. Okay. Um, just a really sweetheart lady. Has two beautiful little boys they adopted and just a fireball of energy Maria is. So I said, I really want to do a book with you if you're game. So she was totally game. So we're in the midst of writing that right now, and it's set to come out in July of 2015. So uh, here in a few months, we'll have a ketogenic cookbook, probably the, the first one, first major one on the market. So we're real excited about that. Yeah, it's uh, nutritious, low-carb, high-fat, paleo meals to heal your body. I love that. Yeah, and, and see, we really wanted to put in there somehow, some way, that this isn't just low-carb, high-fat, because there are a lot of low-carb, high-fat cookbooks out there that use kind of iffy ingredients and yes. <laughs> we really, Marie and I both have a, a real heart for real food and doing this the right way. And unfortunately, there's some that, that promote products and ingredients that we would never, ever want people to put in their in their mouths on a regular basis. So 
that's why we threw the paleo word in there. Plus, it's it's kind of the hot thing right now in in uh, search terms for diet. So why not throw it in there as well? But then healing the the gut and and healing your body. You know, th- those are all important things that I don't think enough people are talking about within a ketogenic context. Yeah, absolutely. It looks beautiful, and I believe it's on pre-sale on Amazon at the moment. That's right. Yep. Excellent. So we'll add that to the show notes as well, team. And so you asked what else was happening yes. in 2015. Um, I am going to South Africa as part of a speaker schedule for the first uh, international low-carb, high-fat conference that's happening there. My co-author, Dr. Westman, will be there. Steve Finney will be there. Uh, Jay Wartman, Dr. Andreas Einfeld from Sweden will be there. I mean, just so many people and a few from your neck of the woods. Uh, Gary Fetke from over in Tassie will yes. also be there. Um, so lots of real exciting things happening there. A, a full three-day conference. And, of course, Professor Tim Noakes is doing uh, great work there in South Africa. He's going to be our host for this event. But uh, we're real excited to be going there in February. Uh, and then I do a low carb cruise in May. So the end of May, uh, lowcarbcruiseinfo.com. If you want to sign up and join us, we've, we've had actually people from around the world come last year. We had a huge contingent from South Africa, but the year before we had a contingent from Australia. So it's, uh, it's pretty amazing how different people come at different times. Yeah, I think with um, Facebook and Instagram and the way social media works these days, it really doesn't limit anyone to um, to getting involved. I know Low Carb Down Under is now huge, so there's a big yep. movement here in Australia. That That's right, and I was very honored to be a part of that, the very first one that they did, and then continuing that uh, this past year. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, good stuff. Excellent. She'll be right. <laughs> if you notice Jimmy's throwing in all his Aussie slang today. <laughs> I gotta do that. I'm an honorary I'm an honorary Aussie now, so <laughs> you are. So before we wrap up today, Jimmy, where can our listeners find you? Yeah, the easiest way to find me is to go to liveinlavidalowcarb.com. Literally every single link to everything I do is right there. Um or if you just Google my name Jimmy Moore. Pretty much the whole first page is all my stuff, my Twitter, my Facebook, uh, my podcast, my blog. Everything that I do uh, is listed right there. So check it out. Yeah, you're not hard to find. I don't hide. (laughs) Awesome. That was fantastic. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. And it's been great to have you on The Real Food Real. And I'm sure we'll speak again really soon. I really like that name, by the way, The Real Food Real. Thanks, Jimmy. Coming to you live from the internet. (laughs) Just kidding. Love it. Take care, Jimmy. Take care, Steph. Bye. Hi, it's Damien Christoph here. 2015 marks perhaps the most important event the Wellness Couch has ever conducted. We've had two sold-out wellness summits these last years, but honestly, nothing will come close to our first ever wellness breakthrough. Your favorite Wellness Couch experts, the Up For A Chat girls, Quirky Cookies Joe Whitten, Stu Hayes, Marcus Pierce, and of course the Wellness Guys are all gathering in Dandong Ranges for three days and two nights for one incredible event. If you want possibly the greatest peer group in health and wellness to help you catapult your life to the next level, then we'd love to see you at the Wellness Breakthrough in February. For more information, go to www.thewellnesscouch.com. 
Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.